You're listening to MHD Off the Record South LA Highlights, where I, Siobhan Taylor, speak with local organizations, small businesses, and individuals doing amazing work in South LA. Here, we uplift and highlight their work while keeping you informed of the resources available in our community. On this episode, we speak with Yolanda Whittington, founder and chief executive officer of Sister Friends, a boutique mental health clinical practice committed to the emotional and psychological wellness of black women and girls overcoming trauma in the presence of structural, systemic, and institutional racism, gender discrimination, social injustice, economic inequality, and health disparities to help black women and girls live a life of fulfillment, abundance, and joy. Through individual therapy, counseling, life coaching, support, and skill strengthening, their dedicated staff of clinical professionals provide safe, confidential space for sisters to release, reflect, and restore. Yolanda is a licensed clinical social worker with over 25 years of mental health experience serving BIPOC, LGBTQ individuals, families, and groups in South Los Angeles who experience depression, anxiety, stress, grief, and loss, and addiction. In this episode, we will be discussing some heavy topics such as sexual assault and sex trafficking. Listener discretion is advised. So welcome, Yolanda Whittington. Thank you, Siobhan. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Because I know you guys are doing amazing work in the community and supporting Black women who are in many types of situations from many types of backgrounds. And I think that's very important and powerful because I'm... I'm a big supporter of work that's very intentional, and that's what you do. And I really want us to talk about Sister Friends and how it began. So what inspired the creation of Sister Friends? Excellent question, and I really appreciate that, Siobhan. So back in the 1990s, uh, maybe around 89, 1990, 1991, there were a group of Black women, young women. I was in my 20s at the time. And we pulled together to form a retreat. It was a Black lesbian retreat, and we had formed this organization called United Lesbians of African Heritage. And the reason for that is that we wanted a way to come together as Black lesbians who were ostracized and alienated from our homes and our families. And in bringing us together, we came up with the idea of identifying other Black lesbians who may have also been in the same predicament of familial alienation, dealing with homophobia, and anti-lesbianism. So in that retreat, we gathered about 150 or 300 women. All of us came together. So what was common in that experience is the trauma that we experience as children, as adults, and as transitional age youth. What we also found out is that there were no mental health services that tailored to Black women, and particularly Black lesbians. So while we're Black lesbians, we're also Black women that have quite a bit in common with our fellow sisters. So out of that there were just maybe about two of us who kind of came together and said, what can we do for um, black women in general, not just lesbians? So at that time, I was not in the field of mental health. 
Um, but we came together and started having discussion groups. By the time I got licensed, we got together some of my licensed mental health practitioners and said, well, maybe it's time for us to form an organization called Sister Friends. The name of the retreat was called Sister Fest. So out of Sister Fest, we became friends. And that's how Sister Friends was born. I love that you guys saw the need First of all, I love that you saw that you saw the need for community and created that first. And this was born out of community and needing that connection and then saying, you know what, let's make this even bigger. This is beyond just us. Let's bring this to the to everyone. Let's bring this to more women and let's expand this because we are black women. We're lesbian black women, but we're black women. And there are so many connections. There's so many, there's so much that we relate with. And I'm very curious to know what, because you talked about there being, um, there not being services tailored to black women and not black lesbian women. And we've had the Ahmad Institute on and they talked about there being specific needs for the black LGBTQ plus community. And I'm very curious to know what are the specific needs of black women and black lesbian women when it comes to mental health services that are lacking in other spaces? Excellent question, Siobhan. So I appreciate you asking that. So there are three things that I think that um, is needed for black women and for black lesbians. So let me start off with black lesbians. The first thing that's needed for black lesbians is the importance of understanding our trauma and alienation within the black family. The black family is what grounds us, is what we're connected to. So that's the first thing. The second thing is our rootedness in our religious practices and spiritual practices, particularly traditional Christianity. And in the church, that has been the number one place where we thought we felt safe, felt loved, felt unconditional acceptance, where we were ostracized, where we were alienated, where we were condemned for who we were. So we needed to have a space where there would not be a barrier of religion to interfere with our emotional unmet needs. So between the family alienation, between the church and their condemnation, and societal's point of view, around sexuality and, you know, um, same gender love, um, that impacted our ability to be our authentic selves. So it's difficult to open up to people who you already know uh, are experiencing homophobia, anti-lesbianism, anti-blackness, anti-woman. So we needed to create a space where that wouldn't be a barrier, where we wouldn't have to explain who we are as Black lesbians or Black women. And more importantly, and this would be probably the third or fourth thing, I don't know what number I am right now, where are the mental health professionals who look like Black women, who identify as Black women, who may identify as a lesbian person? And that's what was needed. Wow. I think... What you're highlighting is so important, especially when we think about the history of many traditional churches where people were. And, and and now I think a lot of things have changed. People are realizing like we have to, we can go beyond church. And some churches are even expanding how they do services where they're actually hiring people who are mental health professionals. And they some churches I've, I've, I'm learning now are be uh, changing even the way that they 
um, address things like the community of, of the LGBTQ plus community being more accepting um, and, you know, no longer saying we're going to ostracize people, no longer homophobic because our church is specifically for LGBTQ plus people now. So we know that these are things, they're slow changing, but they're changing and they're shifting. But for so long, people were only going to church for seeking mental health help and not getting um, adequate professional help. Not because I don't, I don't I'm not, this isn't con- to condemn churches necessarily, but to say that sometimes these aren't places that are equipped. And I think it's important that, you know, we highlight, hey, these were also spaces where homophobia was happening. This is also spaces that were um, anti-woman in some cases. Um, these were also spaces where people just weren't getting the help, the help that they need. And you're saying, hey, we had to create a space to make that happen. And to be honest, if some of these spaces weren't created outside of these religious institutions, religious institutions probably wouldn't have shifted. So the work that you're doing probably is part of, I want to say probably definitely is a part of shifting the trajectory of mental health. Because now we're seeing people say, wait a minute, we have to tailor services for people. Are you seeing that as well in your work? Because you do this professionally even, you've been doing this for 25 years before there was Sister Friends. Absolutely. And yes, we are seeing that. We get calls every day and we don't have the capacity that we'd like. And to hear women say, I'm looking for a black therapist. I understand you serve black women. You specialize in black women. You understand our unique needs. I'd like to come to see a therapist at your agency. So we get those calls. We're thrilled. We take as many as we can. And, you know, we're steadily growing and expanding our capacity. And it feels good to know that we're being of service to a community that has not had their mental health needs met in a way that was, you know, that engendered respect, value, love, compassion, empathy. You know, that, that's, that's very important, I believe, in meeting the needs, the mental health needs of Black women. Absolutely. And even beyond religious institutions, just even government institutions of, for mental health, medical institutions, they've also been... Um, exclusionary. Um, they haven't hired as many black people until recent years. Because so I know even um, multiple times I've talked to mental health professionals who've been in, in this field for 20, 30, 40 years. And they're saying that this is new. Like we're getting more and more young black people, young black women who are entering this field and you're seeing this field expand. And I see a smile on your face and you're nodding. So I'm curious to know what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are, Um, I think that could be attributed to the amplification and the destigmatization of mental health. (laughs) You know, we're now making it safe for us to come and talk about our business. Because, you know, culturally, as Black people, it is not safe to speak up about what goes on in your personal life, you know, uh, the the standard statement with you know was and and is to you know a certain degree that don't be telling nobody my business what goes on in this house stays in this house and that sends a message to us it says it's not okay to share disclose and talk about your emotional suffering it's not okay to talk about you know the unsafe conditions in your home you have to keep that to yourself and keep it within so I'm so glad that there's a shift around the perspective of mental health. And I think that's important. And I, I, man, I love what you're saying because you're absolutely right. Because 
culturally, it could also mean so much more devastation to our families, right? So I go as a child to report, hey, there's something going on in my home. That could mean the ripping apart of my family as opposed to getting my family help, right? So it was unsafe even to even do that. Whereas now if we have more people who are understanding of our culture, understanding of what we're experiencing, we feel a little bit safer being able to disclose certain things and say, hey, I, we need help over here. Hey, I need help. I need support. And as opposed to thinking, oh no, this person's just a criminal, just put them in an institution or this person is this or that because they don't understand our language. They don't understand what we're experiencing. And it, so there's a lot of fear, I think, when you're not talking to your own people who can understand what you're experiencing. Absolutely. And I just want to tap into what you alluded to um, is sexual trauma that occurs in the home. And one of the things that we pride ourselves in at Sister Friends is to look at ways that we can prevent you know, sexual trauma, i.e. sexual abuse, sexual molestation, sexual assault by the loved ones in our home. These are our fathers, our uncles, you know, our moms, our aunts, our cousins, family, friends. And unfortunately, there is this cone of silence that we don't talk about that. We don't bring that up. And so in the preventative counseling that we do, particularly around preventing um, sexual trauma in the home, and this not only for women, but it's also for young boys, is to encourage mothers to sit down with all the members of the family and say, this is what's not going to be acceptable in our family. No, you can't sit on this person's lap. Not unless it's in my presence. No, you cannot be in a room with the door closed with Uncle Johnny. And when I'm not home, you know, these are the things we have to talk about. And it's important that we tell our young kids, you know, what is safe touch, what's inappropriate touch, and make it clear and okay that they can come and share that with us and that they not have to feel under the veil of threat by someone telling them or threatening them, we're going to harm you if you disclose. And as long as parents make it safe for them to talk to them, then I think we'd be able to make a dent. Man, this is definitely getting deep. I had a feeling we we're going to get go here. You know, when it comes to things like sexual trauma in the home, it's it's one of those things that definitely impacts everyone. And sometimes, and, and this is from my experience working in social services and also working with young people, Sometimes when it happens to the child and it's done by someone in the home or someone who's close to the family, I don't always think the parent realizes they've also been traumatized by this experience. So when the child behaves a certain way or has certain things that they're trying to fix the child, and this is from something I've observed multiple times working with families. And I want you to speak to, and, and specifically because we're talking about women and black women, and this is your special, and this is what you specialize in, because in some of the situations I've seen, it's mostly the mothers who are working, who have daughters and, and, and sons, because you actually brought up sons, and it's something else that we don't talk about enough. Um, these mothers who have children who've been um, assaulted in some way in their home or by another relative, and they spend so much time trying to heal and fix the child, not realizing that the person that they trusted maybe their own relative, maybe their own parent, maybe their own sibling, right, has traumatized or hurt their child. And they don't get help themselves. They spend so much time trying to fix this child's behavior without understanding their own 
trauma in this situation. And I would like for you to speak to a little bit about that. Thank you for that question, Siobhan. I appreciate it. You know, there is what we call the big D, denial, mm. denial. It is very difficult for us as a parent to understand and look at ourselves as taking responsibility for not being able to protect our child. So if you tap into that, then that opens up uh, other areas of self-exploration. Are you a qualified parent? Should you be the one responsible for your child if you can't take care of them? If you can't protect them, you are responsible for raising that child, for helping them to become the best person that they can be so that they can fulfill their divine purpose. And here, in your custody, they have been harmed. It is very difficult to confront that because it is extremely painful. The second issue is the trust. And the person you trusted who committed this horrible act may be someone you depend on. It may be that very person who's caring for this family. So how do you then begin to confront them and not run the risk of potentially being thrown out of your own home? And now you're homeless with your children. And then you have to deal with the, again, being judged by persons outside of the home and other families who may not, family members who may not support you. They may even accuse you and saying that this was your fault. And then you have the family members who turn against you. That's a lot for uh, a caregiver to have to take on. So I, I understand. And these are some of the issues that we work through in our sessions. And this is why the work that you do is so important. And this is why spaces and counseling centers like Sister Friends are important. Because I think these are the conversations that can often get swept under the rug. And I do think people have judgments because they don't understand if this hasn't been their own experience or if they're on the outside looking in or if it has been their experience and they're just in their own denial, right? And this is why we need spaces that are very specific to the needs. Because there's also, because the other thing we have to consider is that while all this is going on, because this isn't something that just happens in Black families. This isn't something that just Black mothers experience, right? This is something that foster parents experience, something fathers experience. But there's also these other circumstances that are specific to Black women that they are experiencing in addition to what's happening in their home, right? You're still dealing with massage noir. You're still dealing with this, which is misogyny against Black women specifically, right? You're still dealing with um, the racism that you are, you know, of, of systemic racism, right? You're still dealing with the day-to-day -day struggles of being a Black woman in addition to this trauma that's occurring into, in your home. And they aren't separate, right? You still have to live in um, with these things day-to-day. -day. You still have to go to work and deal with being sexually harassed and not being believed because you're a Black woman, because you're less likely to be believed, because, you know, black women are naturally sexually promiscuous, according to, quote unquote, historical science. If you don't believe me, you can look it up. These are things that have been in history. Um, I'm not going to give a history lesson now. I, I, I tend to do that sometimes. But you're nodding. So they can't hear you. So you got to just say, yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, so in addition to these uh, specific traumas that can happen to many other groups and families, 
at the same time, we're dealing with the systemic racism and the, the systemic sexism. We're still dealing with the heavy burdens of the generational trauma of being a black woman in America. And I would like for you to speak a little bit about that as well. Well, what you're talking about, Siobhan, is an integration. And when you're dealing with this integrated issues that impact us um, psychologically and emotionally, what also is a part of that is the expectation of the black women. You know, I believe it was Michelle Wallace who wrote the book, The Myth of the Black Superwoman. There is an expectation that black women carry the burden for everyone and carry the family. We are the foundation, the backbone of our families and loved ones, of the church, on our jobs. Everyone is looking to us. And unfortunately, there's no one else who's looking out for us as black women because we're the caregivers. We're the ones who are supposed to protect. We're the ones who are supposed to have your back. We're the ones who are supposed to be your ride or die. But who is riding and dying for us? So we at Sister Friends believe that in the space of sister circles and sister support, we are able to be there for one another collectively. And it's through that sense of sisterhood that helps to fuel us, that creates a space for us to seek refuge, comfort, fellowship, to get re-energized, to be re-nurtured by one another so that we can go back out there and be there for our families, loved ones, work, the church, and all, and our children, and all that is very important to us as Black women. And that's soup, man. That's so important. That's super important. And I want you to also kind of talk about what healing looks like for us, because we are carrying so much. We do have these expectations placed on us that we have to carry the family. We have to carry our community on our backs. And who is looking out for us, especially when we're seeing the state of our community being ripped apart? I was just looking at the incarceration rates again recently. And, you know, we're seeing black women's incarceration rates increasing. We're seeing our families get torn apart. We're seeing, and black men's incarceration rates have been high. I think I saw the number that said 95% of black people killed by the police are males. So where does that leave our sons? Where does that leave our partners? Where does that leave our fathers? Where does that leave our, um, you know, anybody that's male in our family, right? Or in our communities. So it does leave us alone. We don't even think about like all of our children that end up in foster care, you know, we have the Right Way Foundation and then what happens to those, those they work with transitional age youth and children who need support coming out. They don't have their mothers. They don't have their partners. I mean, I'm sorry, their fathers. They don't have family that can support them. Sometimes they might have a grandparent, but then what happens when their grandmother is gone? So we have all these things placed upon us, but we still have to figure these things out. So how do we have time to heal? What does that look like for us? What does it mean to be in a space where life doesn't seem dismal, where we're not depressed? What does that even look like? So I think for some of us, it's almost like, it seems like a far off distant thing, like this thing you just see on TV. You know, you see a Claire Huxtable, right? That doesn't seem real for so many of us. 
where you see, and now we're only just now seeing black lesbian characters on TV or in our, even in our purview at all. So what does that mean for that young black lesbian who's trying to find her space in the world where she's been rejected so many times from her own community, from her own family, from her own church, from her own wherever? What does healing look like? Give us that view. I think that's an excellent question, Siobhan. So let me um, address it in bits and pieces. First of all, I think when we talk about healing, you cannot begin to heal without taking time to identify healing space. And healing space means taking time out for oneself. And all of this is new for Black women who endure suffering continuously because we're told and it's expected for us to do, 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 give, give, give. We don't even think about ourselves. We don't stop and ask ourselves, what is a self-care day for me? A self-care day typically for a black woman is going to get her hair and nails done. While that is a form of self-care and it does make us feel good when we look good, I think we need additional self-care. And I think we can learn from members of our host culture. And when I say host culture, I'm primarily talking about white women. White women know how to be self-indulgent and to prioritize (laughs) themselves. White women understand entitlement and they act upon that E word. Healing for black women looks like self-entitlement and the self-entitlement that we give ourselves. That's scary though. I I know, I, I, I love how you're answering this question. Even hearing it, I'm getting triggered. As a black woman, I know, I know that sounds, I, I don't know. And I'm maybe, maybe someone out there can relate something about that feels almost wrong. And I'm sure you've heard this before. It almost feels selfish because I've been taught my whole life to take care of the people around me. Right. I was the only one female in my household. I was the oldest. I was the, the girl, raised my dad had a little brother outside of that. I had my grandma. So I just saw my grandma taking care of us. So I learned that's my responsibility. Now you're telling me self-entitlement. I'm, I don't feel entitled. How do I get that feeling of entitlement when that feels so wrong? Well, I think when we hear the word entitled, there's a, I think there's an assumption that entitlement means to only be self-focused you know, without taking consideration of everyone else. Entitlement, the definition of of entitlement is not selfishness. It is about what you deserve. Mm. (laughs) It's about worthiness. It's about value. We have to understand that as Black women, we have the highest rates of hypertension, highest rates of obesity, high rates of stress, high rates of depression. We don't take care of ourselves because we're busy taking care of everybody else. Once we realize and understand that we deserve self-love, self-care, then we act on it differently. Then we set boundaries and we say, "Uh -uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh-uh, you know, I've done all of this for you. This is time I need for me, and I need you to respect that. And once you set 
those systems in place and you are consistent, that's when our healing journey begins. And that's what healing can look like for us as Black women. Woo! You hit my heart right there. I think that shifted my thinking. And I'm sure for many other Black women out there, uh, and I'm hoping you guys are hearing what was just said here, because that's powerful. Shifting it from feeling like it's selfishness to understanding it's deservedness. Like we deserve it. Oftentimes, we're made to believe that everything is our responsibility. And we don't make time for ourselves. We don't set boundaries with people. Because you can help people. And empathy is not absent of boundaries. And I think what you're saying is, making sure we understand we deserve these spaces. We're entitled to them. It's not selfish to be entitled. There's nothing selfish about making sure your needs are met. Because first of all, you can't help your community if your needs aren't met. You can't help anyone else if you're not taking care of yourself. How can we support our children? How can we support our households if we're drained? We can't get up in the morning and, you know, and pass on joy to our children if we don't feel joy ourselves. Touche, Siobhan, touche. I'm learning this from you right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm just picking up what you're dropping down. You're dropping gems, I'm going to pick them up. So I, I, I appreciate everything you're saying because um, you you're really you really hitting something that so many of us, I think, miss. How important our healing is and what that even looks like. Because we hear these words. We hear self-care. And I like what you said, too. You pointed out, because I, I listen, I keep my hair and nails did. And I'm still stressed out, <laughs> right? And I think part of it is what you're saying is being consistent with our boundaries, being consistent with making sure that we're taking care of ourselves on a regular basis, not just on hair and nail day, which only lasts for a few hours. And then next day we still back. And sometimes the same day, that same night, because we spend all day getting our hair done. It takes me like eight hours to get my hair done. Y'all, I get, I get twists. So, <laughs> so, you know, by the time I get home, I'm still back checking everything, making sure everybody in my family is good and, you know, making sure that the things are taken care of because I know other people in my family aren't going to do it. So I got to make sure to do it. And I think that we have to realize it's beyond just getting, you know, having a nice fun day. It's every day. Every day you deserve a little rest. Every day you got to set those boundaries. Every day you got to say, yes, honey, I, I, I hear you. I'm going to uh, take you out to get ice cream. But mama needs some rest right now. We'll get some ice cream on Saturday. It's okay to say that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You said it beautifully. Um, you said a key word, rest. I think that is so understated for us because we, we don't get the opportunity to rest. Rest is self-care. You know, one of the things we're, we're looking at doing for the community is finding ways to develop a wellness, what I'll call a wellness spa for South LA, where people can come and get massages, they can just sit and do nothing, relax, have people serve them and pamper them. You have all of these spas outside of our area. You know, of course, you got to pay for them and all of that. But we don't have one in South Los Angeles. Not one. Not one, you know. And I think that's something we need to start looking at, you know, with the advent of the California Advancing and Innovating Medi-Cal. They're giving us opportunities to create for ourselves what we need as a community. And I think I would strongly advocate and would definitely work with the city around, you know, perhaps 
collaborating with other agencies on how we can develop our own community spa that is open and free using the public resources for us to get our rest and self-care. I love that. I love that. I think that's a great idea, Um, especially since now we're seeing more of that connection between mental health and physical health. Uh, I mean, it's always been there, but I think the more of the conversation and connecting those services has been increasing. Um, Shout out to Dr. Nadine Barkharis, who I think was a big part of that. Um, of making sure that we understood that these experiences in our childhood have, you know, we I think we often say, oh, that was in my past. Mm-hmm. I was hurt in my childhood and that was over. We're finding out now that has a direct impact on your physical health. Absolutely. And we've talked about it on this show before, and I'm hoping I can get someone to specifically talk about um, the ACEs Average Child Experiences Study, um, because I think that's important that we talk about the ways in which our traumas literally have impacted our physical health. Absolutely. And the only way we can address that is by addressing our mental health now, right? We can do, when we, of course, in our childhood, we want our children to be safe and healthy and we're working on that. But we spend so much time working on our children, we don't think about ourselves and how it's impacting our health now. You talked about hypertension. You talked about um, the different things that, have impa- that Black women are going to physically. And a lot of that comes from our trauma growing up. So if we have a wellness center, this is a space for us to begin to counter that, right? Because with intervention, we can actually still increase our lifespan. Because right now in South South LA, we have, I think we have the lowest lifespan in the, in the county, if I remember correctly. And it's getting lower. What we are now amplifying, but we, we really need to broaden the amplification, is the high rates of infant mortality yes. for Black women. Oh, my God, yes. You know, and I, de- I, I believe, I'm a big fan of um, Dr. Joy DeGruy. DeGruy, yes. Post-traumatic slave Post-traumatic syndrome. syndrome, I believe. She's from South LA, by the way. Yes, Shout she out is. to her. Yes, she is. Absolutely. <laughs> I believe she hit the nail on the head when she talked about that untreated chattel slavery trauma yes. that reverberates itself. I happen to believe, and I'm hoping that maybe Charles Drew may be interested in doing some research on this, that fibroids, which disproportionately impact Black women, are directly related to our history of repeated sexual trauma. Yes. And it manifests itself in disease. Because when you look at the World Health Organization's data, health data on African women, fibroids is not listed in their top 10. It's not even in their top 20. So this may be very unique to Black women with a legacy of chattel slavery. So I I think that's something worth assessing. I agree. That is interesting. This is something that I think Sister Friends should take a campaign. Sister Friends should take up. Absolutely. Um, We should advocate for Charles Drew to, to do that research because I think that's um, something we don't talk about enough is the impact of um, chattel slavery because there's so many studies that have been done. In fact, I think the epigenetic study was done um, on Holocaust survivors, which I think Holocaust was, what, seven to 10 years max, if you think about it in, in those terms. And chattel slavery um, on the record was 300 years. And that's just on the record. It's not even including 100 years of Jim Crow and lynching, Right. And what we're experiencing even today. Absolutely. Right? So we've never, and, I, and actually, this is, by, by the way, it's the line I actually got from Dr. Joy DeGruy. <laughs> I got it from one of her lectures. But this is a great point, though, which is we've had all these experiences, um, negative experiences through slavery and trauma um, for hundreds of years with no intervention, no support, nothing to nothing around the healing of that, um, at least not on an institutional level. 
we've done it individually. We've had we created organizations like Sister Friends and the different organizations that I've interviewed here are doing the work. We're doing it ourselves, absolutely, but institutionally that has not happened. I agree. So I think what you're saying is really important. And I appreciate the work that you guys are doing now. Um, and I appreciate the work that you're going to continue to do. Um, and I know that you guys are uh, one of our CD8 Reimagine Fund community grantees. And I'm curious to know what you were able to do with that grant. Absolutely. And, you know, this this work is the beat of my heart. Um, so we are thankful to Councilman Marquise Harris Dawson and his team for funding us. So we use those funds for a project called Project She, Sisters Help End Exploitation. And what that was, was a street outreach and engagement program where we outreach to women and girls engaged in commercial sex trafficking on the streets of Figueroa and Western. With those funds, we were able to reach, on average, about 40 girls a day. Almost rarely did we connect with the same girl twice, which is really awfully scary. But through that outreach and engagement, the purpose of that was to do outreach and engagement and refer those girls who desire to flee sex trafficking to our program so that we can work with them and support them. So we did and do a lot of rescue work with those girls. And you may ask, well, Yolanda, if you are working with these young girls and they've been trafficked for X period of time what is the shift that occurs? How do you work with them to make that change from continuing sex trafficking to um, going to other forms of uh, earning an income? Uh, three things, very important. A lot of the girls that we worked with, they emerged from the child welfare system. And uh, we had girls uh, share with us that they were trafficked as early as 9, 10, and 11. Unfortunately, disproportionately, the women who are impact, impacted in sex trafficking are mostly black women that you see out there. Um, Figueroa, as I understand it from LAPD, it is the fifth largest track in the nation where people are coming from all over Vegas and different parts of the nation to come there and earn funds through the exploitation of women's bodies. So our work with the girls is to talk to them and get them to shift their thinking from the sexualization of their bodies as a commodity in exchange for sex to understanding the value and the power of their womb and what it does. Mm. We take a spiritual approach to shift the thinking from, oh, I'm going to get money and this is meaningless because I'm using my body so that I can you know, get money for me or whoever they're earning the money for. And once you get them to make that shift around self-worth and deserving and that as a woman, you have the power to bring forth life, you cannot pay anyone to have reproductive abilities. You're either born with that or you're not. And what do you want to do with the gift of life? 
So once you have those conversations around the value of who they are and create a sense of self-worth and worthiness and communicate to them what love is, and it's not about the exploitation of what you do and the risk of your life because awful things happen to these girls, you know, we're able to help them to take that next step. So um, we outreach to about 700 girls with a grant, thanks to wow. the Reimagine Funds. And out of those 700, we probably were able to reach about 40 that we were able to get off the streets. That's, that's a very huge accomplishment. And so um, we're hoping we still do this work, even though the grant period has ended, um, because we don't want to stop. We're not able to do it with the level of intensity that we were, because we were out in the streets like five to seven days a week. <laughs> we're out in the streets now more like three days a week, all times uh, of days, you know, continuing to help women to to rescue them. And so we're, we're really proud about that. And uh, we'll continue to advocate for women who are um, engaged in sex trafficking. But I'm just listening to what you're saying. And first of all, congratulations on the work that you've been doing. And it's powerful for to get 40 girls out of that trade, out of that out of that type of work and is is quite an accomplishment. Because I know that's not easy, especially, especially since I from my own experience of working with um, girls who've been in that world, some of them they were born in it. You know, they don't know anything else. So they started so young that it's like, well, what else do I do? So the fact that you were able to get them out of that is quite an accomplishment. Um, to even reach 700 is amazing. And you don't know what seeds you may have planted. I always try to remind people of this when we, those of us who do this type of work in the community, especially when we do direct service work, because sometimes it feels like if you're not successful with every single one, we can be a little hard on ourselves. Because especially those of us who are very passionate about helping, we can be very hard on ourselves. But I have to remind people, you never know what seed you planted. You don't know if the, it, might, it might not sprout right then, but you might run into them 10 years later and say, you know, I remember when you told me, I remember when you helped me and I never forgot it. And thank you for that. Because of that, even though it took me however long it took me, but if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be alive today. So out of that 700, maybe 40 came out right away, but we don't know what's going to happen in the future for some of those girls. So thank, thank you. you. Thank, no, you, thank you. Don't be thanking me. All I <laughs> thought was tell you what you did. So thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for all the women that are at um, Sister Friends doing that work out there in the streets, on the ground, because that's what's important. I mean, anybody can sit in the office and pontificate and sit on something and, you know, say a lot of things and give a lot of theories. And I see people write books and they ain't been in the streets. I'm sure you've I'm sure you met those people. And here you are on the ground doing that work. So we are so happy that we have people like you out here doing this work. And I'm sure any opportunity we can to support what you're doing, we're doing it. We'll, we got you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Not Siobhan. just CD8 office. I'm talking about the community. Thank you. Okay. We love that. Yes. So do you have any um, events coming up or any programs coming up soon that we can support? Oh, great. Um, well, we were recently funded for um, our reentry work. And thanks to our work in sex trafficking, I think that uh, helped to secure that funding. 
So um, through the County of Los Angeles, Justice Care and Opportunities Department, we were able to- Shout out to them. They're doing great work. They are doing phenomenal work. We were able to get funding to provide reentry intensive case management services. So we're looking primarily to target women, although we're open to serving men as well, but that's our area of expertise. So we're um, welcome and invite any woman, irrespective of um, their- Uh, sex preferences, irrespective of their ethnicity, religious practices. Um, We invite them to come and receive services at our reentry program. Uh, We serve BIPOC women. And again, we serve BIPOC men, but our area of specialty is women. So if you had a recent offense or you've been recently uh, released from incarceration or, you know, you've been in jail, you know, we invite you to come see us. Let's help you lead and reach your goals. For people who don't know what BIPOC is, can you explain what that is? Sure. Black, indigenous, people of color. There we go. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's important. Everybody knows what these terms mean. So let me make this sure is everybody true. knows. It's <laughs> South LA. Everybody don't know all these terms. We see all these, you know, nice academic terms and they sound great. Well, I want to make sure everybody understands. So black, indigenous, people of color. So it means black and Latino and Asian folks are welcome. Um, to get services. And you've specialized specifically with women, but you're open and which is important. So also non-binary folks, you're you're welcome. So don't don't exclude yes. yourself. Trans women, trans. trans women, absolutely. absolutely. Queer questioning, absolutely. There we go. So we're all 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 welcome, all receiving all welcome to receive services. That is great work. And if people want to support, uh donate, how can they do that? Oh, absolutely. And thank you for that. They can donate on our website at sisterfriends.org spelled S-I-S-T-A-H-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Because it's sister. <laughs> sister. Sister friends. No, I wasn't mispronouncing it. I was saying sister. <laughs> it wasn't just it wasn't just my colloquial slang. I was saying it. That's how it's that's how it's spelled. Sister friends. I'll have this information available for you in the show notes. Thank you again so much, Yolanda, for joining us. I appreciate you and your staff and the work that you all are doing in our community. I am, I mean, I loved all the gems you dropped because you even hit me. So I'm, I'm so happy that you were here. Thank you, Siobhan, for inviting me. I appreciate it on behalf of Sister Friends. And again, thank the councilman on my behalf. We appreciate the incredible work that he does. I appreciate you and these podcasts and giving smaller organizations an opportunity to share to the community or with the community about the work we're doing. And I appreciate the collaboration and partnership and support. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. And special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.